Okay, thank you for being here tonight. I uh, really feel like there's a message for you, uh, not a sermon, but a talk. We do talks on Friday nights in July uh, that may occasionally turn sermonic, but uh, we are going to spend July on Friday nights thinking about theology. And I want to set that up tonight. I want to give a bit of a, well, they call it a prolegomena. It's the, it's the first things. It's talking about uh, what is before. And before you can talk about theology in the wild, uh, you have to understand what theology is. And before you can understand it in the wild, you have to understand why it's, why it's wild. And so that's my job tonight is I, I just want to help you understand theology, what is theology, and what it looks like when theology is, is out there in the streets. So let's dive straight in. And I think the way to start is by reminding you that not every Christian thinks this is a good idea. Not every professing Christian would say that studying theology is something that you should involve yourself in. In fact, uh, there's even theologians who demean and diminish and lampoon the work of theology. Uh, Famously, Soren Kierkegaard said that theologians are professors of the fact that another has suffered. Professors of the fact that another has suffered. Now, that critical statement has in it a barbed kind of hook that says theologians are merely hypothesizing. They're uh, thinking deeply about things that they don't actually experience. And they're using the suffering of another, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, to advance their indulgent thoughts. That's probably what he meant by that. Now, a little more down-to-earth, an individual named Jaroslav Pelikan, which isn't a down-to-earth name, Uh, He said that the nearest equivalent in the New Testament of theologians or those interested in theology would be the scribes and the Pharisees. Okay? That hurts too because those are not the good guys in the New Testament. And they were very interested in studying the Scriptures carefully in systematizing their teaching, in codifying God's law, in interpreting it and applying it. They would have been very interested and were very interested in theology. And so if that's the precedent that we have of theologians, maybe we're in huge trouble. Now, let's get even more kind of practical. We'll go from Kierkegaard to Mr. Pelican to your next-door neighbor or your grandma. So Your grandma probably doesn't read much Kierkegaard, but she would say something like, why in the world would I care about theology? I I got my Bible. I don't need that fancy words. You know, I'm not looking for inseparable operations, whatever that is, unless, you know, my, my liver's failing, I need some inseparable operation. So to most Christians... The idea of being a theologian or thinking carefully about theology seems like an egghead move. It seems like something abstract, something 
uh, intangible, irrelevant to the daily life, and, and certainly disconnected from a Christian's worship and mission if their faith is to be simple and pure. And I think a lot of Christians think like that, and they would say, um, or maybe you've said something like that. You don't have a lot of interest in theology, and maybe your your introduction to theology was through someone who who didn't help you see its practicality or its relevance, its importance to your life and faith and worship. And so maybe you didn't have you know something lofty like like Kierkegaard's statement, but maybe something just you know, everyday Christian life is what you're concerned about, and theology to you seems disconnected and irrelevant. And so what I wanted to do in these July Friday nights for us in Crossroads is to help us see the practical side of theology, to see how important it is that we think carefully about theology, that we study theology, that we recognize that whether we like it or not, we are engaged in theological discourse and discussion, and it's theology that shapes our worldview. And the questions that we have about life, the most important questions that we have about life are questions that can only be answered by theology, and in my understanding as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, it can only really rightly be answered by Christian theology. How did this world come into being? What is the purpose of life? How do I evaluate if a statement or a belief is true or false? What is a person? What is existence? How ought we to live? What, what, what's in the future? And is there any hope for the future? What about death? Why is there death? What happens after I die? How do we know anything about that or anything else? Like, what is knowledge? What about ethics? Is this right? Is this wrong? Why is human history unfolding the way it is? And, and why are there elements of human history in the past that are so full of evil and suffering if, if God is in control of this world? And, and what am I to make of why God made me the way he made me. I mean, these like basic fundamental questions that confront and embrace so many aspects of our worldview cannot be approached apart from theology. And understanding theology is increasingly important when we live in a wild, wild world. Now, I like cowboy movies sometimes. Uh, My favorite is called Tombstone. It came out when I was, I don't know, in, in school, <laughs> whatever that means. I've always been in school. But I, I probably saw it a million times with my friends. That's all, all I need to say. I have the whole thing memorized. It, it's a cowboy movie, you know, shoot him up. It's a spaghetti western if you're into the film genre, it, the Italian director, et cetera, et cetera. I, I like it. I just there's something about the wild, wild west that appeals to me. Uh, I like the dusty streets. I like the you know the holsters. I like you know a horse here and there, but I really don't want to ride a horse, so I like to watch them on TV. Um, I always feel like I'm I'm too big for the horse. 
I've always felt that way. It's an insecurity. I'll admit it. Maybe I need to try Clydesdales or whatever, but I'm just saying, I'm not sure about me and horses. So I like the wild, wild west. And, and the more you know, we move towards uh, whatever our culture is doing, it feels like the wild west to me. It feels like law don't go around here, law dog. It feels like the, the basic mores and principles of the world and the basic ethics of the world that were largely and widely accepted are no longer there. And so before I help you see what theology is, I think it wouldn't be hard for you to acknowledge that it's wild out here. It's wild. Like the worldview that is offered to us is increasingly wild. And you don't have to be addicted to like right-wing news or you know, on Instagram all day to be exposed to the, this, this like massive shift in thinking. When I was in college three or four years ago, um, the, the, <laughs> the liberal ethos was the intelligentsia. I mean, it was like, it was the professors and they were the, the, the small minority of society. And they were the ones that held to you know, really weird, obscure views like gender ideology. Gender is a, is a construct. Like that was something that was that was such a weird minority position. And now, like every teenager on Instagram thinks that's the case. And, and so they've won the day. And and I'm saying it's wild out here in the sense of it's not that the the culture has has moved from you know the beautiful Christianity of Leave It to Beaver to today, but. I think it's, it was wild in the Roman Empire, and I think that there's these, these hills and valleys throughout history where Christians who don't have a worldview that's sub- substantive and defensible, that don't have a theological mooring, get swept into the, the folly of the age. And so my concern with talking about theology in the wild this month is that you'll be equipped and interested to study theology because it's your only hope. It's your only defense. If you're going to be able to navigate this world and be able to say more than the pundits on TV, uh, be able to do more than just kind of rehearse, well, that's what my parents taught me and that's what my grandparents taught me. You need to engage as a theologian, in biblical truth, build yourself up in sound doctrine so that you can confront the spirit of this age, you can protect yourself and the people you love, and you can engage a lost world in a way that will challenge their assumptions and point them to their only hope, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus. If you're going to be a Christian in this age, you must be a theologian. It's more critical now than ever. Uh, I could give you so many examples of this, and we wouldn't have to start now. I mean, consider Joseph in his life, how much he needed his convictions his doctrine, his worldview to be shaped by who God is and what God said as he ruled and reigned over the decadence of Egypt. I mean, how how were there guardrails on Joseph's life apart from his ability as a theologian? Think of, of, of Moses and his 
leadership in the book of Exodus, uh, also you know, confronting his entire childhood being brought up with these conflicting viewpoints, the gods and goddesses that populated the Nile, and then this ancient Hebrew deity that his nursemaid slash uh, mother would, would, would whisper in his ear. And, and Moses grew to be a theologian, someone who, who knew who God was and knew what God wanted and, and knew how God interacted with this world that he lived in, a world that was not Christianized or, or certainly wasn't Jewish. It was a world that was full of gods and goddesses and magicians and sorcerers and and death threats and, and foreboding armies and uh, you know smoke on the distance leading the people through the reception of law at Sinai. I mean, God made Moses a theologian because only a theologian could navigate what Moses navigated. Uh, I take Elijah going toe-to-toe with Jezebel and her pagan uh, entourage in Kings 18, 1 Kings 18, Elijah understood something about God, a truth about God that you you may not learn if you didn't study your Bible, if you you didn't think about how the, the word of God speaks to the exclusivity of God above all other forces. And that's something that Elijah understood so that he could boldly proclaim that Baal would not answer the prayers on Mount Carmel. And so whether it's Daniel in Babylon or Nehemiah in Persia or Paul in Athens, which I'll look at him in a, in a little bit, every single believer has been required by God to be a theologian. Or to say that another way, every believer, in order to survive the wild, the culture in which they live, the godless pagan society in which we we inhabit, the time that God put us here, they have all had to be someone who knows who God is and knows what God wants so that they can operate on the basis of what's true and right and pleasing to God. And so... It's not that this age is different than that age. I think it's an increasing awareness that we ought to have that in every age, no matter how wicked and how lost our society is, no matter what kind of seemingly newfangled sin is dangled in front of the children of this generation, God is still the same. And it still requires those who can carefully learn and study and apply theology to be effective ambassadors for Christ and faithful believers in the wild world. So that's what I mean by theology in the wild. So let's dig in. Let's do some definitions. What is theology? What is it? So not a difficult word to define, uh, it's from the Latin is theolo- theologia, and the Greek is theologia. It's the same kind of word in both languages, and it's barely changed to come to English. It's simply the study of God. Uh, that's what the compound means. But to go beyond that and help you understand, 
Uh, Robert Raymond defines theology this way, intellectual or rational discourse about God or things divine. Intellectual or rational discourse about God or things divine. The classical curriculum of theology in a divinity school or or just in classical theology, thinks about theology in several categories, kinds of theology. If the animal kingdom is divided up into genus and species, then theology can be divided up and traditionally has been into four kinds of theology. And I think this could be helpful for you to understand. And you probably heard these words. Let me just explain it to you. There is first off exegetical theology, which a less fancy word for that is biblical theology, kind of the same concept. It's what the Bible teaches, and it's, it's theology that's derived from a text of Scripture, from the careful examination and exploration of a passage of Scripture. That is, that is a, a, an exegetical approach to theology. A second approach to theology or category of theology would be historic theology. Historic theology is how Christians before us, believers before us, have understood truth about God, how they've built on the work that others have done before them. And I think you understand in a church like ours how important that is because you you hear a lot of old dead guys, Christian dead guys quoted. You've gone to talks on Augustine or on uh, Luther or you you know about heroes in the Reformation or, or figures from church history. And so you're connected to the importance of historical theology. Uh, Maybe more of you are interested in things like creeds and confessions, old statements of faith that Christians have used throughout the centuries to define what it is and crystallize what it is they believe. Things like the Westminster Confession or or, um, the Heidelberg or... Uh, the uh, the Apostles' Creed, Th- those kind of things are familiar to you uh, because they connect the theological issues we face today with how those issues were dealt with in the past. So that, that's two things, exegetical, one category, another, historical theology. Uh, the one that's probably most well-known is systematic theology, and that just simply means it's organized. It takes everything that the Bible teaches about a certain topic and looks at it across all of the Bible and tries to organize those topics. Systematic theology is what most theology books that you'd be familiar with are uh, attempting to do, whether it's Burkhoff or Wayne Grudem's Systematic or our favorite, The Big uh, White Whale of MacArthur Mayhew, the biblical doctrine book. That's a systematic theology book, and it's just organized to look at theological topics across the, across the Bible, organize them and bring them together. The fourth category would be practical or pastoral theology. And that looks at how it's lived out, what the implications are, what the ethical ramifications are, or how it applies to the church or society. And all of those categories overlap. You you can't have one without the other. There is no systematic theology that cannot consider what theologians in the past have done in formulating and synthesizing the doctrine of the Trinity. There is no Systematic theology that would be unconcerned or divorced from practical or pastoral theology. And there's certainly no attempt of an exegetical theologian to dismiss the rest of the scripture's teaching on anything. And so all four of those categories go together. I give you them to just give you some familiarity with with how theology is, is thought about. But remember, we're working on 
the definition of theology, which is a discourse about God. It's, it's intellectual engagement about God or, or the things of God. It's how do we understand God's perspective on anything and how do we understand God's perspective on God? Gordon Clark talks about the, the rise and fall of theology as a science uh, when he said this, theology once was acclaimed as the queen of the sciences, and today it hardly arises to the rank of scullery maid. Scullery maid. It's often held in contempt, regarded with suspicion, or just ignored. So if theology is the study of God, the engagement with the things of God, I think it's important to note that it is the queen of the sciences. It is the most important thing that we could engage our minds with. And I think the supreme example of a theologian among us is not somebody that teaches at the Master Seminary or a famous pastor on uh, YouTube. The greatest theologian, the most preeminent theologian is not you know, Moses, who is, is certainly of great regard, or the Apostle Paul or Augustine or, or somebody like that. If we're looking for the theologian par excellence, there is one that we have to look to as the ultimate example of a theologian in the wild, and that is Jesus Christ. Let me show you that in the Bible. Starting in, in Luke chapter 4. So what is theology? It's, it's, it's discourse about God or the things of God. The wild is where we live. Why should you be a theologian? Well, first off, Jesus was a theologian. And I think you should join him. Luke 4 verse 16 says this. He came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Verse 20, and he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, Jesus in this moment shows us a supreme example of both of the intersection of all the fields of theology. Exegetically, he opens the book, the scroll of Isaiah to be specific, and he carefully reads a passage from the scriptures. Historically, he orients that moment in Israel's history to the moment in which he stands, thus making it a very practical or pastoral moment in the theology. And even in a systematic way, he organizes the teaching of Isaiah by showing its culmination is on the figure of the Christ. And so Jesus is a careful theologian in that he looks at Scripture and he sees its meaning. He draws out the significance of it as an exegete. He brings to bear the significance of this from the time in which it was composed to his modern audience, and he 
announces the implication of the truth that he has put before them, the proclamation of the gospel and the recovery of sight of the blind and the healing of the sick and the favorable year of the Lord, something they had anticipated and longed for for centuries was upon them and it was fulfilled by him in their presence. Only a theologian could do that. Jesus, yes, was God and Jesus was man and Jesus was able to as a human being, study the scriptures and apply them to his context and apply them in the wild. And the wild was indeed wild. He was surrounded by other theologians, competing philosophies, competing interpreters who did not agree with the way he understood the scroll of Isaiah but he would go toe-to-toe with them with truth on his side, and he would defend his theological position, which was that he himself was the fulfillment and culmination of all of the scriptures. That messianic hope was found in him. What a theologian. Let me give you another example. John 5 verse 46 says this. For if you believed Moses a way of talking about those first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, called it the books of Moses. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Again, Jesus is equating his words with the words of Holy Scripture, the esteemed Hebrew Scriptures, And the utterances of Christ are placed on the same level. This is a beautiful example of systematic and pastoral theology as Jesus applies theological truth, the revelation of God, God showing himself through his word to the incarnate revelation of God in Jesus's words being spoken in time and place to the crowd in John chapter five. So, This is Jesus, the theologian, showing us that a careful and systematic, historically accurate and experiential and practical approach to the word of God is what he was all about. If we go back to the book of Luke towards the end, we would look at Luke 24, and and we don't have to turn there, but I could just remind you, Jesus is on the road to Emmaus. And he asks those men that are walking where they're going and what are they talking about. And Jesus explains to them that everything that they'd been reading in the Bible was pointing to him. This is the work of a theologian. Now, Jesus did not reserve that work to be his and his alone. He entrusted the work of teaching theology, teaching truth about God and And there's different words that I'm going to use here, and I don't know that I need to make great distinction between them, but if I use the word truth, there's a a New Testament word that you're familiar with. It's called doctrine or teaching, and those are synonymous words. And they're not separate from a word like theology. Doctrine is the content of theology. In fact, in that big white uh, whale of a theological book, uh, help me. Lord, 
the MacArthur systematic book. You know the one I'm talking about? The White Whale. We'll just call it The White Whale. Everybody good with that? That's The White Whale. There's a section where he talks about how does doctrine relate to theology. And I think the summary answer is doctrine is part of theology. It's just a a simple way of communicating truth. And just like you can have bad theology, you can have false doctrine. So good doctrine or, or good teaching is what I'm talking about when I say Jesus mandated theological training. The dissemination of theology is something that was on Jesus's mind as he ascended to heaven. You know this as the Great Commission. So why should we care about theology? And then really, what is it? It's the study of God. It's to be lived out in this wild world. And we understand significance because Jesus was a theologian. And second, because Jesus invested in theological training. If you look at the words of, of the Great Commission as we know it, that reminder that we're to tell the whole world about Jesus' death and resurrection, there is an insistence in Jesus that communicates that theology is to be taught in perpetuity for all his followers. Jesus said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them, that's doctrine, that's theology, to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, Jesus is entrusting the work of a theologian, of someone who imparts good teaching, good theology, right thinking about God to all those who would represent him. And he does so in a highly theological way. Did you notice that? Just look at the Great Commission. The authority of God over heaven and earth, that's called general revelation. That's the stuff that God made. That's the world in which we inhabit and then he talks about disciples, which, which has to do with, with pedagogy, with, with uh, knowledge, epistemology. I mean, there's all this theology just in this little famous commission. He says to all the nations, there's missiology, baptizing them. That's practical ecclesiology in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's theology proper, and that's Trinitarianism, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. That's catechizing and teaching all truth to the followers of Jesus. And then the promise of Jesus' presence would certainly include pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and until the end of the age would include eschatology. I mean, to dismiss theology is to dismiss the most primary command that Jesus left with us, which is to make him known to the ends of the earth. And this is Jesus the theologian showing us that all these categories of of theology that some might be prone to dismiss as egg-headed or irrelevant or uh, hypothetical are actually part and parcel of the work we're called to do as believers slash theologians. Every one of us follows after Jesus and follows after those who followed Jesus when he mandated theological training. And we're given a great example of this in the New Testament. Who who took this up in in maybe the, the way that was most 
exemplary, if we have an exhibit A of of theology in, in the Lord Jesus Christ, exhibit B would likely be the Apostle Paul. And he's not alone, but he is certainly featured predominantly. And I'll just show you two examples from Paul's life to convince you that you too, like the Lord, should obey his command to be a theologian. And this is, this is where I'd have you go. Go to Acts chapter 9. Acts 9. Paul has been a Christian for approximately two seconds. And in verse 20, look what he does. He's just converted. Verse 20, now for several days he was with the disciples who were in Damascus. And immediately, verse 20, he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, is this not the one who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. He's just converted. He's just become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is already intellectually engaged with all his prior knowledge of the Hebrew Scriptures. The the pieces are falling into place. And he immediately contends for the faith. In Acts 9, it uses the word sumbabatson. Uh, it's, it's a word for, it's a legal word. It's to prove, it's to insist on, it's to demonstrate, it's to show forth. That's what Paul is doing. He is proving that Jesus is the Christ. How would Paul have done that? He would have engaged in a sustained theological argument, in a discourse, He would have put forth his evidence. He would have opened the scriptures. He would have reasoned and answered questions. He would have argued for the truth that the messianic identity and kingdom is found in Jesus and inaugurated by his death and resurrection. And this was not a friendly crowd of Sunday school kids that he was talking to. These were the Pharisees, those who were most directly responsible for killing the Messiah. And that's the, that's, I mean, this isn't like a friendly debate he's engaged in. Paul followed his master Jesus immediately as Jesus mandated those who would follow him would be his emissaries theologically, and he engaged in theological discourse about God, the things of God, about Christ, about the work of Christ, about the cross, about the resurrection, about the fulfillment of prophecy. All of that would have been on Paul's mind. And when the text says he was strengthened, it means that he got better every day at proving these things to be true. One more passage to show you Paul the theologian, Acts 17. I mean, the most obvious example would be read his letters. Read the theologian's letters. They're so rich with with the, the truth of God's word, with the application of of God's character and attributes and the work of Christ and and every theological category is derived from the epistles of Paul nearly. And so, but to give you another narrative example, Acts 17 verse 2 says this, 
And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and stirred up the crowd and on and on. The point is, there's another word here, and it's the word uh, dianongion. It's, uh, and there's, an, there's, there's two words here. One is the, word, the Greek word for explained, and the other is a Greek word similar to the first word I gave you for prove or demonstrate. I mean, Paul employs every bit of logic and persuasion and uh, intellect and argument to show forth the truthfulness of his claims that Jesus is the Messiah. And so Paul is an able and apt theologian. And any time you share your faith, you are doing the work of a theologian. Any time you represent the claims of Jesus' deity or his work on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, you're talking about highfalutin theological ideas. And maybe you don't use the phrase penal substitution. Maybe you're not talking about the, the finer points of it. But anything in the realm of the knowledge of God and the work of God and the person of Christ and the work of Christ and his plan for the church and his, uh, the culmination of all things in the eschaton, every single piece of that is theology. And it can be done well or it can be done sloppy. It can be done to the honor of God or it can be done in a way that dishonors God. And so, if theology is intellectual discourse about God, if it's the study of God, if it's the, Maurice Roberts calls it, the thought of God, I'd like to wrap up by helping you become a better theologian. Just, just a couple minutes on this. I, I want to talk to you about theology in the wild, specifically what I think we need to see as practical theology. So if I've shown you that Jesus was a theologian and that he entrusted theology to all who would follow him, that theology is the study of God, that it's not optional, that any truth claims that you make need to be derived from the scripture, that you can't share your faith apart from theology, you can't be a Christian uh, apart from the work of theology, the, the showing forth of theology, and to understand and grow in theological accuracy as part of maturity and sanctification, I just need to show you that this, this final piece of the puzzle, which is how do you reconcile theology that's theoretical and theology that's practical? And I don't think you have to make them fight. And so that's what I want to I show you. I want to show you how theology relates to your personal life, okay? You get that it relates to engagement with the culture, with telling the truth about God, uh, about who man is. Uh, I mean, what, what it, pick any debate that people have today. Uh, gender ideology, abortion, whatever it is. Pick any debate that's a hot political topic. Those are not political topics. Those are topics that cry out for a theologian. And Ben Shapiro 
may make a lot of sense on one side of that argument, but he is not a good theologian. That is a much better work to be done by you as someone who knows the God who made this world. And when you engage in those discussions, it's not that you're a donkey or an elephant. It's that you are a Christian theologian and you represent truth without any shame and with clarity, with just like Paul did with proving and explaining and persuading because you understand who made this world and that this world someday will answer to God. So how do we think about how theology relates to your personal life? If we want to say, does theology have an impact on, on my own heart and my own soul? I get that it's necessary. I get that it's historical. I get that it's Jesus and his followers, etc. Show me how it'd benefit me this summer to, to think more carefully about theology. Austin, please help me. And I'm like, okay, I will. Just give me a couple minutes. Ready? How does it relate to your life? I'd like you to know that godliness, Christian spirituality, that prayerfulness, that sanctification, growth, Christ-likeness, holiness, intimacy with God, and maturity do not automatically come as a result of the study of theology. I think it's important I say that. And what I'm trying to tell you is that studying that Bible, systematizing that doctrine, will not automatically make you godlier. It must be done as your work in theology, whether it's primarily devotional or public or whatever realm you're living in, the theoretical and the practical live side by side. And I want to show you what that means. So Christians grow by way of the coming together of the theoretical and the practical. And by theoretical, I don't mean maybe, maybe not. I mean it the way the theologians of old, particularly Francis Turretin, used the word theoretical. Theology is both theoretical and practical. It's obvious to us that theology must be practical. It has to result in obedience. It has to result in faith. And something purely theological in our minds sounds speculative or maybe, you know, 1 Corinthians 8, knowledge puffeth up. It's just, you know, a brain activity. And it can be that. But Turretin argued that theology can't simply be theoretical or practical, that you don't get to pick that real, true theology done in a way that honors God is going to mix those two things together perfectly. This is what that means. As you engage in thinking about God, as you read difficult theological material, as you engage in the white whale, or you read J.I. Packer, or you, you get into some theological blogs. Be careful, don't choose bad ones. Uh, as you work there, that's the, the mystery, the mind-stretching, 
the considering, the thoughtfulness, all of that is the the theoretical side of theology. It's the thinking about it, the working on it. And the mysteries of the faith, the love and the worship in your heart that will come from that activity will not result in right living and right doctrine until it is meditated on and considered and thought through and mulled over and applied in your own heart first. And then you'll see what the fruits of that are. That's why someone could study the doctrine of predestination their whole life and be unconverted. It's why somebody could study the, the you know, finer points of eschatology for their whole life and be unconverted, but be able to make these amazing charts about the Horror Babylon or whatever. Studying those charts, memorizing those graphs, uh, memorizing a bunch of different doctrines or, or doctrinal verbiage does not in and of itself produce sanctification. In the white whale, I think this is a, a MacArthur line, it says this intimacy without maturity results in spiritually infantile behavior. So putting that in our terms, that's the theoretical, the devotional, the deep, thoughtful consideration of God, apart from the practical implications in living it out, will result in spiritually infantile behavior. In contrast, maturity without intimacy results in a stale, joyless Christianity that can easily deteriorate into legalism and sometimes even a major fall into sin. This is page 60 of The White Whale. I want to read it to you again because I know there's a lot, but I'll use my hands. Intimacy without maturity. So that's purely speculative, devotional, heartfelt consideration of theological truth. Apart from maturity, which I take to mean the living out of theology, results in spiritually infantile behavior instead of spiritually adult responses. In other words, if you study theology just to swell your head and to be able to argue with your opponent and and best your friend and you know, fight somebody on Facebook and mostly just leave it all between your two ears and be, you know, this, this, this smart, accurate, ornery, theologically tight person, but you don't know how to live out that learning with grace and engagement and wisdom and reasonableness and exactness and logical argument and everything that requires all the work of faith and the love that will come of it, then you are going to be spiritually infantile. Lots of theology, no love. But on the other hand, if you're going to be, the other side of this, in contrast, maturity without intimacy. So this is a person who lives a certain way, who has these external commitments, who appears to be close to God, but lacks that 
thoughtful, heartfelt, worshipful engagement with the truth of God, resulting in a stale, joyless Christianity that can easily deteriorate into legalism and sometimes even into a major fall into sin. MacArthur goes on, however, scripture teaches that when intimacy and maturity complement and feed off one another, the result is a strong, vibrant Christian maturity. Genuine spirituality then must be marked both by intimacy and maturity. And scripture is going to be essential for all of it. And so as we engage in theology in the wild, and whatever topics we get brought on a Friday night, and you're going to get brought all kinds of random topics coming at you by imminent theologians. I want you to dig in deep on the heart of it. How is this going to help me worship Jesus and adore God and and know him more? And, And you cannot divorce that from, so what am I going to do about it? How am I going to live in this wild, wild world? B.B. Warfield wrote a little book. He wrote a lot of big books, but he wrote a little book. And in it, uh, it was a book called, it's, it's, we have new seminarians read it. Uh, it's for, it's like the secret life of American seminarians or something like that. That's not what it's called, but it's called something like that. And this is a lengthy quote, but I'll close with it. I want you to hear it. How does, how does theology relate to life? If such be the value and use of doctrine, the systematic theologian is preeminently a preacher of the gospel. And the end of his work is obviously not merely the logical arrangement of the truths which come under his hand, but the moving of men through their power to love God with all their hearts and their neighbors as themselves, to choose their portion with the Savior of their souls, to find and hold him precious, and to recognize and yield to the sweet influences of the Holy Spirit whom he has sent. With such truth as this, he will not dare to deal in cold and merely scientific spirit, but will justly and necessarily permit its preciousness and its practical destination to determine the spirit in which he handles it and to awaken the reverential love with which alone he should investigate its reciprocal relations. For this, he needs to be suffused at all times with a sense of the unspeakable worth of the revelation which lies before him as the source of his material and with the personal bearings of its separate truths on his own heart and life he needs to have had to be having a full rich and deep religious experience of the great doctrines with which he deals he needs to be living close to his god to be resting always on the bosom of his redeemer to be filled at times with the manifest influences of the Holy Spirit. The student of systematic theology, that's you, needs to be a very sensitive religious nature, a most thoroughly consecrated heart, and an outpouring of the Holy Ghost upon him, such as will fill him with that spiritual discernment without which all native intellect is in vain. He needs to be not merely a student, not merely a thinker, 
not merely a systematizer, not merely a teacher. He needs to be like the beloved disciple himself in the highest, truest, and holiest sense, a divine. Be a theologian in the wild. Father, thank you for these friends and for bringing them here tonight and the reminders that we've had from your word of the mercy that is your revelation. Thank you that you have unfolded your words to give us light. And you have not eclipsed them, but you have shown them clearly forth from the scriptures for our knowledge and for our good and for the good of this world. And so, God, we need your help to ensure that our theology is both theoretical and practical, both devotional and experiential, both divine and worldly. Help us to engage with hearts full of reverence and love for you, O God, in a way that is compelling and effective and logical and true. May we be able to discern lesser things from from greater things. May we be able to understand the way we say things and who we say them to knowing that we represent a God of incredible mercy and grace. And God, we're grateful for your truth, grateful for doctrine, grateful for theological teachers. We see the practicality of all of it, and we don't want to divorce it from the life of your people in church and society. So thank you, God, that you are a God of truth, and you've given us that revelation and light in your Son whose name we pray. Amen.